Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we discuss the meme stock frenzy, which gripped markets in early 2021 and the recent rally in these stocks. I want to understand why the markets behaved so strangely last year, and if there's any chance that we are actually heading to the moon. And later, we answer the dumb question of the week. What does it mean when we say something is priced in to markets? Okay, let's get into it. In January 2021, we saw incredible action in the markets as an army of retail investors from Wall Street Bets, which is a Reddit forum, took on hedge funds who had shorted GameStop which is a bricks and mortar retailer. And the price of the stock shot up ridiculously, over 2,000% in the month. And a lot of people made money and even more people lost money. And now what we've seen in the last week or two is the prices of these meme stocks, such as GameStop, start to rise again. Roman, is this Groundhog Day? It certainly feels like it, doesn't it? I remember at the time just thinking this can't last. And of course it didn't. You know, I mean, it was eventually something which imploded. But now we're starting to see a kind of redux of 2021. On a smaller scale so far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so far, it's nowhere near as, 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 as extreme as it was in those heady days of 2021. But I think what, what's really happening here is kind of bleed over effect from the crypto space, which is very different from how traditional investing works. And I think this is to do with the fundamental way in which you know, stock prices are driven. Traditionally, the way it's worked has been, okay, sometimes you get exuberance, but generally the reversion to the mean, if you like, is to the earnings. So it's a multiple of earnings. <laughs> All right, granddad. <laughs> <laughs> boomer. Yeah, that's what people usually say. I'm not a boomer, actually. Gen X. Just past boomer. Yeah. So generally, the way this works is company generates, say, 100 million in profits. People are willing to pay 15 times that, and that gives you the market cap of the stock. Or if it's, you know, $1 in earnings per share, then they'll pay $15 for the share. You know, that's the kind of very simple arithmetic which gives you the fair value of a stock. I don't know what kind of arithmetic was going on in the GameStop story. (laughs) Well, that's why I think it's interesting, because for things like uh, crypto, where there is no fundamental value, there is no income that's generated, it is a Ponzi asset in the definition that's created by Minsky, which is an asset which doesn't generate enough cash flows to pay for itself. Now, if that's the case, if it doesn't generate cash flows, if it is a loss-making company, then how do you actually value the company? You can make some kind of guess about when it'll become profitable and then guess about the terminal growth rate. You know, you can extend this guess about cash flows into the future and base your model off that projection. But there's a lot of optimism baked into that because a lot of companies don't make it. (laughs) I don't think that's what anyone was doing, though. To me, when I looked at what happened in that month, that crazy month, it was more people weaponizing the actual mechanics of the market. So you had this huge short position built up by hedge funds. I believe 139% of GameStop's stock was shorted. Now, I, I don't understand that for a start. How can you short more stock than there even exists? Well, remember that if you own the stock, then you can actually lend out the stock. I don't know what the denominator was in that uh, shorting calculation, but effectively you could take all of the people that own the stock 
and all of them could lend out the stock. And then the people who've borrowed it can lend it out again, and you get to this 139% figure. Yeah, maybe that's how it works. Maybe there's kind of uh, kind of recycling of the, of the stock, which has been shorted. But either way, it put the company in a perilous position where you know it had this huge short interest, and it was ripe for a short squeeze. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why it happened. But I think a core reason is actually to do more with the way stocks are now valued in some cases. So what I mean by that is really it's more about social attention. Once you've got a stock which has a lot of interest, it could be a Reddit forum, it could be on Twitter, it could be on TikTok. But once lots of people are kind of engaged with the stock, then they're quite capable, if there are enough of them, to bid the price up to crazy levels and to keep it there for a long period of time. That's completely price insensitive. It's nothing to do with valuation. It's to do with attention. So in order to be successful in that model, all you have to do is create some kind of forum, create the kind of following for that forum and have enough critical mass of people in order to bid up the price. I mean, that definitely happened on the Reddit forums. So the subreddit Wall Street Bets went from 2 million followers at the start of January 2021 to 6 million by the end of the month. And it's now 12 million, I believe. And the page views went up to 73 million in 24 hours. So you had this huge mass of people using their hard-earned money to buy these meme stocks. But it was interesting as well how they bought it, because a lot of them bought it via call options. Now, the reason why you were really good in your intro to mention weaponization of financial instruments is that historically... Retail investors, normal investors like you and I, don't buy call options. We just buy the stock, we'd hold it, we make money, lose money, and that's it. We lose money. (laughs) For single (laughs) stocks, I suspect we probably would. But the point is that with a call option, the way it works is it's kind of like a contract which gives you the right to buy a stock at a certain price in the future. And if the price is actually higher than that strike price, then you make a profit. And because you put very little capital up front, it's a highly levered bet. Now, what the interesting bit of this weaponization is, is that because there were so many retail investors buying these call options, of course, investment banks have to take the other side of it. You know, all they saw was huge flow on their derivatives desk. So what investment banks are going to turn that down? They're not, right? But what people don't understand, at an investment bank, they don't take a directional view on the underlying stocks. They're not allowed to. Yeah, they just want to make money whatever happens, right? Exactly. And they'll lay off their risk at the end of each day. So if they along, say, I don't know, 100 million of a certain stock, their risk department will ensure that they flatten their position. And they can either do that with you know, the opposite position. You can take a short position, which cancels it out. Or you can find other derivatives, which kind of cancel out the directionality of your position. So the actual act of hedging by the investment banks created something called a gamma squeeze. Oh, that was the name of my third album. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But the upshot of that gamma squeeze is that the investment banks are having to buy the stock as it rises in price. And that amplifies the upward price movements. And the more that people are buying these call options, the greater the gamma, particularly for short dated options, the gamma can be absolutely huge. And, you know, a few days before expiry, it can almost go to infinity. So it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy where all this action by retail investors, these leveraged bets, these call options, forced the investment banks to sort of do their work for them and buy, buy, buy on the stock. Exactly. And it can reverse very quickly as well. You know, that's the risk. 
But effectively, a gamma squeeze destabilized the stock and amplifies volatility because everyone was long. You know, all these retail investors were long and they had call options, which meant they made money if prices went up. So the opposite position from the investment banks, they were short and they had to buy the stock as it went up in value because they were short and they had to cancel out their short position. So this was almost like a perfect storm. And it's really interesting case of pump and dump. This was the historic way that people used to artificially inflate a stock price. And of course, it's illegal. You know, you're not allowed to do pump and dump because, you know, it's wrong. But was this really a pump and dump? Like the price, even in the year after the short squeeze, did not go back down to the sort of $20 level. People were clearly still holding it. Was it not like a pump and hold? In some cases. Diamond hands, Romin. Yeah, diamond hands. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that, That was what they called it, wasn't it, on Reddit? And still do. But I think what's clear is that, you know, it was nothing like the peak. And I think a lot of people got burnt because they got into the trade late and they rode it down from the the highs that we saw. Oh, definitely. But we also did see some prominent hedge funds lose a lot of money. So I know Melvin Capital, who had a big short position, ended up sustaining losses of 53% or $6.8 billion from this trade, which is, there was some going. Which would have been very painful for them. Of course, they were doing the traditional thing. They were looking at the fundamentals of the company. Many of them were loss-making, many of these meme stocks. And they were saying, this is crazy, and we're going to go short the market and profit from the inevitable collapse. What it looked like to me was a massively crowded trade on both sides. You had this huge overshorting and then this huge overbuying with leveraged call options. Immovable object and irresistible force, and it just exploded. But I think what the upshot of this is going to be is we're going to expand probably the definition of pump and dump. And the SEC will probably do some kind of legislation to ensure that somehow this kind of pumping of a stock, even if it has atrocious fundamentals, is probably going to have to end. I don't know how they do it because everything that they did was legal. But of course, saying that you like a stock is fine. You have to justify it. And of course, if you look on the Reddit forums like Wall Street Bets, they actually publish pretty good research. I like the way they kind of analyse some of these stocks. I mean, some of the research is just dreadful. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, maybe one in 10 will give you some insight. But I think a lot of it is simply optimism. If you've got a loss-making company, then ultimately it's a matter of faith that a movie theatre like AMC can turn around its fortunes very quickly. And if people were really keen on the company, you'd go out and buy its stuff. Well, they offered free popcorn to investors, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) But you shouldn't buy the call options. You should go out into their movie theatres or go out into GameStop and buy some video games from them. I mean, I think it's really interesting. That's the kind of thing that ties all these different stocks together, is they're often legacy businesses which are on the wrong side of of a trend. So GameStop was being outcompeted by digital sales of games. AMC, like you say, people are watching Netflix at home. BlackBerry, well, what do they even do anymore? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, for those companies, it's incredibly hard to turn it around because you have to kind of kill off your legacy business to adapt to the new world. Perhaps this will give them a new lease of life because, I mean, if you were the CEO of AMC, you'd do exactly what he's doing, which is taking the capital, saying thank you very much, and going off and buying assets, which hopefully will improve his prospects. But of course, I use the word prospect very carefully there. Yeah, clever. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, you explain it, Michael. Well... Adam Aaron, who is that CEO of AMC, has bought a 22% stake in Highcroft Mining, which is a kind of struggling microcap gold mine. 
doesn't seem to be in the core competencies of a cinema chain. And it's a gold mine that hasn't actually mined gold for quite a period of time. So <laughs> not, not, not only is it a gold mine, but it's a gold mine that doesn't mine gold. But I saw an interview with the, with the CEO and he said that their core competency now is not really cinemas, it's operating as a meme stock and he kind of wants to build this conglomerate of other meme stocks. And this is exactly what he's doing right, which is he's actually playing to the gallery. He's drumming up this support, trying to continually wow his supporters with more crazy, crazy things. I mean, he donated $100,000 to a gorilla reserve, which is Wall Street bets refer to themselves as apes and love the gorillas. But I think he's doing exactly the right thing. You know, it's not about generating profits necessarily. It's about creating this kind of attention and continually trying to grab that attention and sustain the interest. Because the worst possible thing which will make him fade away and you know fall back to a reasonable price to earnings multiple is if suddenly all of the kind of meme craze starts to dissipate. You know, the magic fairy dust of the Reddit forums start to disappear and people just get bored with it. That's his greatest risk. So as long as he can come up with these crazy schemes and carry on doing it, you know, I think they could carry on having a crazy multiple for a long period of time. A lot of people said that one of the key ingredients for the short squeeze that happened last year was, you know, everyone sitting at home in the pandemic, being a bit bored and treating this like a game. And I think that's true. But I think what many hedge funds started to do once they saw this happen was, you know, why don't we do this? You know, we've got resources. We can pay literally people to sit and read these forums to search for the next gamma squeeze. And we can actually monetize this. So I think initially it was just a kind of bunch of people doing that from their homes. But I think many institutional investors may now also be interested in what's going on. Oh, for sure. I imagine there's a lot of opportunity to sort of astroturf, to use the term, a campaign to say, oh, this is the next big stock, like fake that there's a buzz around it. And then, you know, do a classic pump and dump. And that's what I think the SEC is going to have to clamp down on. You know, if there's no prospect of huge profits in future, if it is just a matter of opinion, then, you know, they have to monitor this and also try and stop it, I think, because eventually many people are going to get burnt. You know, the people who get in on the trade early on will be the ones that profit. And that's why pump and dump was originally banned, because ultimately it's the people who pump who make the money. And then when they dump, everyone else gets wiped out and they make a big loss. I mean, some people say that the reason that the pump stopped was that platforms like Robinhood literally banned retail traders from buying GameStop at the height of the craze. And that was what caused a lot of anger. I think that is a mistake. I think stopping the trading is not the solution. I think coming up with guidelines as to you know what you can do in terms of promoting a stock and trying to get other people to buy it, I think that's where the legislation has to act. But it's going to be very difficult to do, I think. I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, if you just say, I like this stock, clearly that's not enough. I think the cat's out of the bag, though, on this. Like, how can you police millions of people on social media? By putting people in prison. I mean, that's how that's how pump and dump schemes stopped, right? It was, it was because they jailed the people who were doing it. And that's what the SEC will probably have to do. It's not going to be popular, but I think it has to be done because, you know, I don't think that it's actually a legal thing. I don't think it should be a legal thing to take a stock which is essentially worthless and try and you know, drum up support for people to buy it and pump up its price. 
when it's not justified by the fundamentals. But I am an old guy. You know, I, I, maybe that's the problem. But imagine if this was to happen on a very large scale. I mean, this is just a few stocks, right? Imagine, you know, people talk about ETFs distorting markets because you have price insensitive buyers that buy the S&P trackers and then, you know, anything which is in the S&P increases in value. Well, how about if we had a world in which all money flowed to the stocks, which simply a craze? You know, so they'd be companies which didn't produce any good goods and services, but they did manage to capture attention on social media. Well, then there'd be a catastrophic misallocation of capital. But surely we're a long way off that kind of thing. Well, well, we are now. But I guess the point is that if it did become more widespread, the SEC would be forced to act. Because if we did see a huge misallocation of capital in this way, then that's effectively the end of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, the incentives are wrong, aren't they? If you're not being rewarded for being a good business, you're being rewarded for being a random chosen business. Because the evolution of companies is something which is really interesting to watch. I think the allocation of capital by markets is something that's a beautiful thing to watch. You know, companies which aren't very good go to the wall. Companies which are good produce goods and services which are really useful and people get delight from using them. Those are the companies which thrive. And that's the way it should be. Where it did get kind of scary was there was talk of the clearing houses potentially being in trouble, which, you know, that really would be a systemic risk. Because clearing houses, as you say, you know, that's the kind of, I guess it's a kind of failure point in a sense. Clearing houses, just to explain what they are. So let's say you buy something from me and it's a large institution. We're both large institutions. You want to make sure that the money comes to you just as the asset comes to me. So the clearing house ensures that happens simultaneously. I get the money and you get the goods. And there's no counterparty risk because everything is handled by the exchange. But you could say, well, the exchange is actually concentrating this counterparty risk. If somehow the plumbing goes wrong, then, you know, you could have an exchange which goes down and then suddenly all of the counterparties are going to have to have some kind of recourse. Because this is why Robinhood said they had to stop trading was because the clearinghouses, they require brokers to post margin with them to sort of cover it for them if, you know, they don't deliver a stock. And usually it's a percentage of the value of the stock being traded, but I think they put it up to like 100%, so they had to effectively post the money in real time. Well, think of it from the exchange's point of view. So let's say you've got a certain position, and what you're trying to avoid is your counterparty building up a huge loss or gain. Now, the margin depends on the volatility of the stock. So you have to kind of get the margin through the door before the big movements happen. But of course, if volatility goes from something like 10% 10% to 200%, which is which it did in some of these cases, then suddenly your margin requirement has to increase. And that's all they were doing. They were ensuring that the margin was sufficient to cover the crazy vol. Yeah, so Robin Hood said they had to go out and raise more capital just to post margin at the clearinghouses. So. Yeah, I think that's quite reasonable for the clearinghouses to do that. What I found really interesting about that period in January 2021 is I learned so much about how markets work. Before, I had no clue about clearing houses or trade settlement. Like I just imagined, oh, you buy a stock and it instantly is your stock once you buy it. But no, there's this like two-day period where it has to settle and they have to deliver the stock. And sometimes they fail to deliver. Like you buy a stock and then it doesn't deliver. It's interesting. I used to work at an investment bank, as you know, and there was an entire army of people who would sit with spreadsheets and they'd do something called trade recs, trade reconciliation, ensuring that the right person bought the right thing at the right price and that both parties agree on what that price was and that everything goes through smoothly. And these poor kids, and they were literally kind of like 20-year-olds who were highly educated, very bright, 
and they just sit on this floor doing these trade wrecks. I, I felt like calling Amnesty International about this, but, you know, they got paid quite well. But it is a kind of soulless job. Some of it can be automated, but it's surprising how much you need humans to do these trade wrecks. There is talk of trying to get it down further from the two days to near instantaneous settlement with you know new technologies. It's come down hugely though. I was looking into it and back in the 18th century, it took 14 days to settle a trade where you know you literally had to put a piece of paper on a horse or a ship or whatever <laughs> and sail it to a new exchange. Uh, but you know, that's come down consistently since then. And I think it went down to two days just four years ago. And, and you know, people are trying to reduce it. And you can do that with automation to a certain extent, but there has to be a level of trust in the systems in order to automate it. And I think that's what particularly investment banks and brokers are very loath to do. And sometimes these trades aren't trivial. You know, there can be a multi-leg trade, there can be quirks to it which are difficult to automate. So, you know, I don't think it'll ever be completely automated, particularly for the big trades. And if we think about some of the longer term implications of this meme stock frenzy, do we think it says something about the psychology of these new, or I presume new, retail investors? I think I think one of the things that really is misguided is who the bad guys were and who the good guys were. So who really benefited from this meme stock frenzy? A couple of people would have made a lot of money with their call options. The vast majority maybe made a profit, and I suspect several people made some massive losses. I suspect the majority made a loss. But remember who really profited? It was the investment banks. It was the brokers who had huge flows of trades going through. Because remember that trading is a flow business. You multiply the number of trades by the profit per trade, and you're trying to get as many trades as you can. So if brokers had designed a system to maximise their profit, it would have been... This. Yeah, it would have been Wall Street bets. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's as if you've taken you know, Wall Street bets and designed it to create greater flow. Because you know, as you and I know, the way to win long term is not to trade a lot. It's not to take too much concentrated risk too much leverage. And that kind of behaviour is just a catastrophe for the entire investment banking system and the whole ecosystem of active management. If everyone were to do it in the sensible way, a huge swath of the investment banking system, the active management system would effectively have to shut down. It would be a catastrophe for that whole ecosystem. So this is really the last hurrah, I think. Nah, they always come up with ways to make people trade more. Like I think the whole Robin Hood commission-free trading model is really incentivizing people to trade way more than they should because they think it's free, but it isn't free. You know, you're paying a spread and they're getting payment for order flow. So you're not getting the best price, allegedly. Yeah, so the way this works is, you know, you place your order with Robin Hood, it takes your trade, bundles it up with other people's, and then it sells it to brokers. Now, of course, those brokers may try to do a good price for you. Or maybe it won't be such a good price, which is more likely. <laughs> and so you you won't see a particular commission charge for that trade. But if you look at the bid offer spread, you could almost certainly do better. You get what you pay for, right? There's no free lunch here. Yeah. And if you don't know what the product is, you're the product. And it's kind of like the lottery, right? Because in the lottery, you never hear about the 99 million people who don't win. You only ever hear about the winner. And it's exactly the same with these meme stocks. The person that loses money generally won't talk about it. But the person who's bought call options on Tesla, who becomes a millionaire, sure, you hear about that. And I think the platforms will probably promote that. You see it all the time. I mean, the broker I'm with, for example, in the UK, says these are our most popular trades today. And it kind of lists, you know, which, which of them are very popular. And it's always the same ones, right? Tesla, maybe GameStop would be another one. And of course, that's trying to encourage you to have FOMO and 
working on your cognitive biases to try and get you to go out there and buy that stock. There was one guy, wasn't there? Keith Gill, his name was. He went by the alias of Roaring Kitty, who I think kicked a lot of this stuff off with his research he published on YouTube and on Wall Street Bets. And he bought $53,000 of call options in 2019 on GameStop. And that rose to a value of $48 million by the end of January. So he did pretty well out of it. (laughs) He did really well, which is brilliant advertising, right, for the whole meme frenzy which is, look, here's someone who did it and won. And here they are giving it to the man, you know. But we can't begrudge him that. He made a call and it worked. Yeah, I I don't think that's the problem. But I think focusing on the winners and not the people who got burnt by this is a mistake. And I think that's only going to kind of exacerbate the problem in future for many people. This is why you don't work for a newspaper, Roman. We all want to hear about the lottery winners. I don't want to hear about someone who's just burning two pounds a week for their life. (laughs) This is why I'm always talking about base rates, because the base rate for the lottery is that almost certainly you're going to lose. And people don't talk about that. Uh, And that's what miscalibrates our expectations and makes us carry on doing the dumb thing, which is to buy the lottery tickets. But are we playing a different game, maybe, to the people on Wall Street Bets? We're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to invest. And in 30 years time, hopefully it's grown and compounded and, you know, we've done nicely. They're not playing that game. Maybe they are just comfortable taking a ridiculous risk and seeing that they might get rich quick. And for many people, it's not going to work. That's the point. You know, what's the probability of success using that strategy? And what's the consequence of that strategy, which I think is the misallocation of capital? But you don't ban the casino because people are going to lose. Maybe they know that generally they're going to lose, but they're happy to take the flyer. But maybe you should just educate people about the probability of winning and then it'll be a very empty casino. Yeah, but you'd miss out on all these memes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do like the memes. They are quite entertaining. But, you know, I I just don't like the idea of kind of misleading people, playing to their cognitive biases when most people are going to lose. It is annoying that, you know, we're basically buying all these sort of investment bankers, their Ferraris and Lamborghinis. No, that's the truth of it. That's that's effectively going to be the end game here. This is going to pay for lots of Lambos. Did you see that a meme stock ETF was launched by Roundhill Investments with the ticker meme? And there's another one actually, which is called Buzz, which is quite similar. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, they have had a big turnaround with the rest of the meme stocks. But actually, if you look back, it's March the 14th that was the turning point when the Nasdaq kind of turned around. So did cryptocurrency. So did many of these meme stocks. So if we look at the recent returns, yeah, so GameStop is up 143% as we make this podcast. AMC is up 116%, NEO 50%. These are basically the ultimate risk on trade. So sentiments slightly turned around in the last few weeks. Oh, you didn't let me say ARK. ARK is up by 28%. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you got your ARK reference in. But the NASDAQ's up 15, you know, and and the S&P's up 10. So I think it's just a risk sentiment reversal. But it makes sense that these are kind of leveraged versions of like growth stocks, right? Because that's how people are buying them with call options. And the the attention hasn't gone away. These people are still out there, the ones for whom this worked previously. So they're obviously thinking, look, it worked before, it'll work again. What if it does work though? What if like AMC becomes one of those zombie companies we mentioned that turns itself around and becomes a huge conglomerate? Could it happen or is it just dreamland? Sure, it could happen. I mean, they've got capital, which they can raise very cheaply, you know, with the share price at hugely elevated levels. Presumably, that also means that if they tap the equity market and they get a lot of capital through the door, they could also tap the corporate bond market. But the question is, what do they do with that capital? Buy gold mines. (laughs) (laughs) 
But what does a company then become? You know, I like gold companies, maybe gold mining companies. I like movie theater companies. But do I want a gold mining movie company? Probably not. The same thing that, you know, I have issues with companies that buy Bitcoin, you know, like like MicroStrategy. You know, they've bought a lot of Bitcoin. Fine. Buy Bitcoin if you like it. Buy MicroStrategy, a kind of education company, if you like it. But do I want something that's both? Probably not. It's not what you learn in business school, is it? In business school, they say, work out what the core competency of your company is and then relentlessly focus on that and become the best in class. They don't say, oh, we're a cinema chain. People have stopped going to the cinema. Let's buy a gold mine. And it's usually a really bad sign if you do get this drift in strategy. It just shows that the company just doesn't know what the hell it's doing. It can't succeed in its own field. So it's trying to do other things which may work or may not. If you're a cinema, you have to do something. It's interesting. I think if you look back on my career, I've tended to work in industries where there has been this huge shift going on. So my first jobs after university were in the music industry and record companies. And we were seeing this huge shift to streaming, like Spotify and things like that. And it's incredibly difficult for a company that's basically had a license to print money with CDs at £15 a pop back in the 90s to then like kill off that golden goose and switch simultaneously to the new model. That's really difficult. And then I went on to work in television where there was again a switch to streaming and then in the news industry where people have basically stopped buying physical papers and you're just like, how do I monetize it online? So I've kind of seen how difficult it is for the legacy business to compete with new entrants because you have all the people in the organization who are used to doing things a certain way and there's this institutional knowledge of how you make money, which doesn't really apply anymore. But I think that's good in a way because this is how you create the innovation. I just remember that there was lots of illegal streaming of music for a long period of time and the reaction of the companies was simply, you know, the music companies was simply to say, oh, fine, we'll just put them in prison. That's what you're saying the SEC should do now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think illegal streaming is illegal. And the upshot of that was to actually create a new framework that was legal, which is to stream music. So I think as long as people are playing by the rules and there isn't this kind of clear pump and dump, which is what we've seen in the case of meme stocks, which really aren't worth very much at all. I think as long as that's the case, you know, I think the innovation is kind of interesting and and fine. I was just making the point that it's really hard for a company like AMC to turn itself into anything but a movie theatre chain. But the way they've captured people's imagination via their social media is really top notch. I think that's very good. But buying the mining company, mm, not so much. I just wonder what do they know about mining that people in the actual mining industry don't know that they can go, oh, this is the one to buy. What I'm surprised by is that they didn't buy something like some kind of NFT platform or some kind of cryptocurrency platform. I mean, that's what I thought GameStop should have done. When Robinhood blocked all the trades, I thought GameStop should have launched a trading platform and be like, we're the (laughs) platform of the people. Come on, we'll never stop you trading. The kind of cognitive biases which we're trying to avoid, which we talked about in this podcast, are the kind of things we discuss in PensionCraft all the time. So if you want to learn more and join our community, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, each episode we ask a dumb question of the week, and you can submit your own, which we may choose to answer in the future. If you want to submit a question, email us at mhr at pensioncraft.com. This week's question is... What does it mean when we say something is priced in to markets? You hear this all the time. It's kind of a truism. Everyone goes, oh, it's priced in. But Roman, what does that mean? Well, it usually means a lazy strategist because people will say, oh, look, the earnings of this company have just increased 10%, but the price hasn't gone up. Why is that? 
and you're on Bloomberg TV and you're a bit sleepy and, and you don't really want to answer the question. So you say, well, it's clearly already priced into the market. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. OK. So that's the kind of honest answer. But I mean, I mean, there's a more fundamental question here, which is all why we like these dumb questions, because it does tease out a deeper truth. And the point here is about market efficiency. So when you look at the price of a company or a stock or a bond or actually any kind of financial instrument, what you find is that it does very rapidly pick up all the available information. So there are various forms of this efficiency hypothesis. So weak form efficiency, as it's called, the idea here is that the share prices fully and fairly reflect all past information, right? So that's not very controversial. And then you get the semi-strong form of efficient markets. So the idea here is that share prices reflect all publicly available information and that adds to the past information. So for example, if they just publish their earnings, yes, the market will react and the share price will go up or down. It's not always predictable, but it usually does. And then there's the strong form, which actually probably doesn't apply. So this assumes you have all publicly available information, all past information, and all private information. Remember, that's called insider dealing. So that's not strictly legal. So that could happen. I mean, it might be the case that really good analysts could guess what's going on behind the scenes. But if they find it out from the company itself, that's insider dealing. You can't have market-moving, price-sensitive information, which isn't published to the entire market in one go. So the idea here of saying something is priced in is to basically say markets are more or less efficient and the share price reflects kind of what it should be. Yeah. And, and if something new comes along, such as bad news for a company, say, let's say the sales growth is not as high as expected, then you punish the stock, the price goes down. And that very quickly reflects the new information. So quickly, in fact, that it's almost impossible to monetize the shift in the share price. It would seem that something like the meme stock craze would say at least the markets can't be strongly efficient, right? There has to be mispricing somewhere for that to happen. And there's a lovely example, actually, because GameStop has the ticker GME. And during this meme stock craze, there's another company unrelated to GameStop called GME Resources, which is an Australian mining company. And their share price increased more than 50% intraday, which is like, okay, that's a perfect example of an inefficient market. Just like nonsense. But the question is, will it stay that way? You know, how long is it going to be mispriced until people realise their mistake? So certainly over the short term, I think there are market inefficiencies. And, you know, you can always monetize that. If you're the kind of person who's contrarian, if you're willing to go into a market when it's in despair and valuations are low, which they do go low for a long period of time after a crisis, then you can actually monetize the despair. And so markets do overreact, but certainly over the kind of long term, they price in pretty much accurately, I think, what's exactly known about a single company or a single stock. And that's why it's hard to beat the market. And that's why so many people fail to, yeah, because maybe you can make a kind of short-term buck out of the mispricing, but longer term, I think it's much more difficult to do that. The other context where you hear the sort of pricing in narrative is in something like interest rates, where people say, oh, the market's pricing in seven interest rate rises in the next year. And I'm never quite sure what that means, or the market is pricing in. Now, there are certain situations where markets price in information to be consistent very, very rapidly. And the examples where that happens is where there's an arbitrage trade. Now, an arbitrage trade is one in which you take no directional risk, very little risk at least, 
and you can use that to bring two prices into alignment. So let me think of an example, right? So let's say you take a bond and you split up all of its cash flows into single cash flows and then add up the value of each of those cash flows and compare it with the original bond. Now, they should be exactly the same, right? I'll take your word for it. Well, imagine, you know, if, if the actual bits of the bond were cheaper than the bond itself, what would you do? Would you buy the expensive one or the cheap one? I'll buy the cheap one. Okay. <laughs> and you sell the expensive one. And because you're taking no directional risk, you're long and short effectively the same thing. You just lock in the profit. So that's called an arbitrage trade. And an arbitrage trade is what holds ETFs to the correct value. Yeah. Authorised participants do this for exchange-traded funds because they can swap out a basket of stocks for the fund itself. So the two stay in line with each other. Again, a nice arbitrage trade. And in fixed income, these arbitrage trades are done all the time and it's pretty much automated. Is it hedge funds that are doing it? Hedge funds generally will do it because it requires very rapid reaction times. It's done by machine usually and a lot of maths and a lot of quants. So, you know, they have those things in spades. So they can actually monetize these tiny differences in price very rapidly. So those arbitrage type trades keep much of the fixed income world in sync. So that'll be the futures market for fixed income. You know, you can get treasury futures, euro dollar futures, and then you've got the bond market. So that's true. What you don't get is, say, the Fed says something about interest rates. Now, there it's not so clear cut. You can't arbitrage what the Fed has said with the yield on a two-year bond. All you can really do is react to the information or overreact. But where there isn't the arbitrage, you get kind of emotion creeping in and exuberance and despair and all those kind of human emotions. So, you know, general market levels, I think, are kind of inefficient in that sense, because you do get periods of despair, joy, overreaction. Yeah. If markets were perfectly efficient, then you couldn't have bubbles. Yeah, you wouldn't get bubbles and you just immediately move to the right price. And there's a really nice piece of research by Robert Schiller. I'm a big fan of his which was looking at what volatility you get in equity markets. What he did was look at the future earnings of companies in the S&P, because people always say the market is forward-looking. And what he showed was, if you actually look at how much those earnings increase or decrease over time, the volatility you see in markets is wildly higher than you'd expect. Because, like we've been saying, new information comes along, the price jumps up to the new level, and that's it. You don't get loads of trading either way. But that's exactly what we see. Huge volumes of trading when new information comes along. The other thing is when a company announces a stock split, usually that can sort of raise the price. You're like, why? I mean, you're just cutting the cake in half and pretending you've got more cake. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's really worked. For many of these stocks, like, uh, for example, Apple did it. Uh, Tesla did it. They're going to do another one. Yeah, they just announced they're going to do another one. Split it every year and they'll just go up to infinity. <laughs> But what's weird is they announced they're going to do it in a certain number of years' time, and it still increased the share price. So, you know, people aren't rational in that sense. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. If you want to keep abreast of the most important goings on in markets and the economy, why not sign up for my weekly market roundup at pensioncraft.com? It's free. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 